0: Uh, this podcast is a short reflection on the compulsive uh, need that uh, tremendous um, 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 forces in the world around us seem to have right now to keep religion out of the equation, to keep religion, the uh, emphasis or, shall I say, the motivating power of religion in human history and human culture, out of the sort of reported um, Uh, explanation of how and why the world is the way it is. I've called it Under Satan's Son, uh, which uh, I will uh, mention at the end, which is a direct uh, quotation from, I think, a novel by Georges Bernanos from 1926, which I admire, and the title will become clear at the end. But uh, the very fascinating question, at least to me, is why uh, the compulsive uh, need to... Um, uh, resist and uh, not acknowledge simply empirically the tremendous forcefulness of um, a religion and religion's ideas uh, in the uh, whole realm of human activity. And I want to uh, use two bits of uh, um, input to uh, express this, uh, two bits that uh, matter enormously to me, um, and one of them is really uh, quite... Um, delightful and remarkable and this is one of the very last um, teleplays that was written by Nigel Neal now in this uh, 1996 teleplay um, Neil, uh, for all his lady, doth protest too much. Agnostic atheism uh, reveals uh, something very important about the compulsive character of uh, of, uh, of of the of the uh, way people really want to force religion out, and yet they cannot but uh, allow it to come in through other doors, because uh, the power of it. Um, you might say, in the archetype or in the basis of human existence is so great. Now, this is one of my uh, ridiculous to the sublime. What is sublime is what I'm now going to talk about. What is ridiculous is the compulsion and the broader broader ideas. What is sublime is an episode uh, of a very popular television show from the 1990s that starred Sean Bean uh, called Sharp, S-H-R-P-E. And it was a series of books by Bernard Cornwell which um, gave the adventures of a major... uh, named Richard Sharp in the British Army under Lord Wellington during the Peninsular Campaign of 1810, 11, 9, 12, uh, before the invasion of uh, Lord Wellington's uh, British Army on uh, France, which culminated in the defeat of uh, Boney at the Battle of Waterloo. And prior to that, the um, primary battle that was land, uh, uh, as opposed to Radigan's Lord Nelson, um, bequest to the nation, the primary battle on land was fought in Spain. Uh, against the British Army under Wellington and uh, the French Marshal so- sou I think his name was, um, uh, 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 in uh, representing Napoleon's troops. And it was a terribly uh, uh, f- um, discouraging and uh, sort of futile war that ended in British victory. And Sharp is simply a series of, I think, 16, one-and-a-half-hour or so television shows from... Granada TV or something like that uh, that um, uh, focuses on this sort of cowboys and Indians with a little bit of uh, harlequin romance thrown in adventures of Richard Sharp played by Sean Bean and it's very well done he's got a marvelous Irish adjutant or sergeant major and his troops are uh, you know it's a there's a huge fan base for this show which will disappear as all the fan bases do from Paul Dark to master and commander the great fan bases. (laughs) Miami Vice, they go for a generation or two because these shows have a tremendous impact on people at a certain age and then they die and we are forgotten but Sharp has a huge fan base to this day and um, the uh, shows are all about Sharp's adventures in the peninsular campaign against the French with some partisans thrown in and a lot of some breasts and uh, décolleté and heaving bosoms uh, and sort of the kind of unwrapping that was uh, allowed in British television long before American television and NYPD Bloom. Now, what is so interesting and relevant to this uh, discussion is that um, of all the 16 episodes, one is usually singled out by the fan base as being worthy of contempt. Uh, they would like to destroy it. I was with Bill Bowman and Lloyd Fonville years ago at a uh, at a World Science Fiction Convention meeting in Washington, D.C., and a very nutty sort of lady, as we saw it at age 13, stood up in a um, colloquium about Edgar Rice Burroughs, who we knew a little bit about, and we were trying to be very adult, and someone had said, well, this particular section of this particular novel by Edgar Rice Burroughs appears to have been written by someone other than Edgar Rice Burroughs, and a woman with tremendous passion leapt up with dyed red hair, we noticed at the time, and henna almost, and stood up and said with incredible ferocious feeling edit the page edit the page well in a way the fan base for sharp the series want to edit the page in relationship to one particular episode called sharp's gold and this episode the phone is ringing don't you love it uh, this episode entitled Sharp's Gold um, uh, was written by Nigel Neal. And uh, Nigel Neal imports uh, his own interest at the age of 73 into this uh, episode of a rather um, what we some would call middle-brow British uh, adventure series. Sharp's Gold imports a concern altogether transcending and beyond the normal issues of the, uh, whatchamacallit, now, so what, I, what is happening here? And this is really fun. You can get it any. You can rent it from Netflix. Barnes and Noble sells it. It's easy to get. Sharp's Gold, one DVD of that notorious episode. In it, Sharp, Richard Sharp, Major Sharp, is commissioned to <clears throat> exchange for uh, fifty-two British deserters who have been captured by a Partisan, in quotation marks, named Casca. Sharp is uh, commissioned, sort of like that movie by John. Um, Uh, uh, What is it? John Ford with Richard Widmark. uh, Two against whatever it was. Anyway, two rode together. That's right. Two rode together. Uh, He is uh, to um, exchange uh, Baker rifles, a supply of Baker rifles to this Casca, this partisan, in exchange for the return of 52 British prisoners. And uh, this happens. And uh, what we do not know, but we immediately know those who love this kind of material, as soon as Casca uh, comes into the frame, we know that all of a sudden Nigel Neal has crashed through with an entirely different persistence of vision into this otherwise um, relatively non distinguished but good television show because as soon as Casca comes on, he's dressed in the armor of a Spanish conquistador of the early 1500s now we're in 1811 Spain and he has a great cloak and as his blackened horse and he ride into the frame mist and fog the fog machine is at work and all of a sudden this is is Count Dracula has come into the world of Richard Sharp and his Lancashire Fusiliers or whatever they are And his bosomy uh, uh, sort of girlfriend who's with him. An unbelievable shift of genre. Now, it turns out that Casca and his men are, a la the Hammer Horror film from 1968, The Lost Continent, Casca in Sharp's Gold and his partisans, they're not really partisans, are the fourth generation survivors, descendants of a group of Spanish conquistadors who were converted to Aztec pagan sacrifice during their time in Mexico and came back in a galleon bearing massive, what we today call pre-Columbian Aztec gods huge um, stone statues of Aztec gods carried in their galleon which they then uh, uh, dragged into this very remote setting of caverns in uh, Spain, somewhere, where they conduct horrific scenes of pagan Aztec sacrifice, and you know what I'm talking about—either flaying their victims alive, um, or um, uh, cutting them open while alive, the poor victims, and cutting their hearts out and offering their hearts to the these huge stone, impassive, powerful gods. And so uh, Richard Sharp, good old Sean Bean and his girlfriend run into pagan Aztec worship from uh, almost three centuries prior uh, and time immemorial uh, in these caves and must extirpate and destroy and uh, this terrible thing. It's sort of Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom via the Lost Continent comes into Poldark or something like that. And you have this amazing importation of an extremely cool and I I think inspired idea. Which is all about religion and superstition, and you know that Neil the master is at work when the sharp and his men uh, billet their horses one night. They are sort of near the near the, the the what they're looking for, and they billet their horses one night in an old abandoned building which is completely free of all furniture. Nothing's in it, and uh, the sergeant major, who's a devout Irish Catholic, says, "Mother of God, this is the house of God. Mother of God, Major, I think this is the house of God. But where's all the the crosses?" have been removed, the statues of the Virgin Mary have been removed, all the pictures of St. Francis, everything's been removed because obviously we're near the realm of Casca and his Aztec-worshipping descendants of Spanish conquistadors tearing the hearts out of French captives. Oh my gosh, this is so cool and so amazing. And without going into the denouement, which is wonderful and fascinating with a little bit of Nigel Neal type reflection on the character of Superstition, what am I talking about? I'm talking about here we have Nigel Neal, the agnostic who is more of an atheist. I think he probably would have said, I'm an atheist bordering agnostic, just like James Gould Cousins. Probably it would have been fair to say... That these men—I'm going to talk about him in a minute—are atheists who are sort of slightly to the right of atheism. They're they're bordering on the agnostic. Uh, they're, they're not as cruel towards uh, religion, but they don't believe it. Uh, and yet they they leave maybe a tiny little window of an inch open. But otherwise, this is what they are. And yet here he brings into this sort of typical Daffy, not Daffy, this very serious uh, British. Uh, a novelistic picture, um, uh, really uh, circa 1995, he brings something altogether different, which is a profound interest in the galvanizing <coughs> power and motivating influence of religion for good or for ill by the way, there's a nice uh, Scottish Presbyterian major also in it who uh, is sort of the voice of evangelical religion, but he's pretty nice and actually a good guy and very full of uh, uh, courage and pluck. Now, isn't that interesting that um, the power of the religion to find its way in, you almost sort of say you know, you, you can't keep Christ out of Christmas. I mean, you can, you can say all you want, you can talk about holiday, and, and we have, there's been a shift in our culture around us, there's no question. It, holiday is now written in steel. It's no longer an option uh, on all the catalogs. And uh, Christmas really is a a, a, a sort of an interesting and odd, almost exotic. When someone says Merry Christmas, it's almost exotic to you. Um, uh, I know a young clergyman somewhere who recently was having coffee with someone, and a a woman, obviously a very, very intense evangelical Christian whom he had never met, came up to him. He was wearing a collar and said to this young collared uh, Episcopal clergyman, I just want to tell you, Father, Merry Christmas, looking at him straight in the eyes to say, you and I know, right? You and I know. Well, whatever was obnoxious or not obnoxious about that person's... uh Um, intervention, it reflected the esoteric, the exoticism of saying Merry Christmas. Well, you can keep Christ out of Christmas, but I mean, why in the world do we give gifts? I mean, you know, do we have to say it's some ancient Anglo-Saxon custom? What it is is we give gifts, we go to the mall, we have an obligation to give gifts because there is written into the thing deep down the notion that you give gifts because God on Christmas Day gave the world a gift. Well, um, whether you like it or not, Christmas has a way of coming back in, and Jack Kerouac said that the world was like a sort of a of a, 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 a well ballasted um a ball or a well ballasted craft in a, in a in a in a pool of water that Despite all the sort of Poseidon adventure tidal waves, would normally, unless there was really a tidal wave, would normally write itself. The world, he said, was ultimately too large not to write itself. R I G H T. So don't worry. Uh, this will have to, whatever the empirical fact of life or even of Christmas observance, it'll have to come back in some way, at some form, even for purely economic reasons. But my point is, even Nigel Neal could not uh, restrain himself at age seventy-three from writing about the nature, power, and impact of religion uh, for good or ill and there it comes as a kind of obnoxious uh, uh, opening of the window to arctic blasts of wintriness into what is otherwise uh, a fan base of uh, of uh, all this kind of material and instead we have um, we have this it reminds me a little bit of Dark Shadows which was kind of an importation of one genre into another and fascinating well I'll mention one other thing and I'll mention the fact that the author, whom I always feel with his Baroque style had a kind of a very um, tentative, masculine, introspective uh, report of what goes on, at least inside me, inside my inner thought world. That's James Gould Cousins, who mastered a kind of repertorial observation of what goes on inside the head. That's the great contribution he makes. He understands all the different voices and competing hearings that go on and dialogue and conversation, conversazione, that takes place inside a reflective person's uh, head or even a non-reflective head. And all these different conversations are reported by this unerring observer of by love possessed. But recently, Mary had given me uh, one of uh, Cousins' unacknowledged early works. He wrote four books. One was called Confusion, one Michael Scarlet. one Cockpit. And the final of the four unacknowledged works by Cousins is entitled The Son of Perdition. And these were four novels which, after Cousins had a breakthrough, In the early 30s, through his novel S.S. San Pedro, which is really a very outstanding novel, he was willing to take um, responsibility for what he wrote. So the canon, as you'll see in all the Harcourt, Brace, Jovanovich editions, which are now um, not around, of uh, ABE books of Cousins, they always acknowledge his books back through S.S. San Pedro, but they don't acknowledge the first four. So Mary got me a wonderful copy of his 1929 book, The Son of Perdition, which is about a kind of a uh, satanic character who's actually a Boston Brahmin hobo in the um, Cuba in the midst of the sugar industry. And then there's a kind of a very worldly master of uh, capitalistic enterprise uh, character. And then there's a Roman Catholic priest. And what is so interesting about Cousins is that he, like Nigel Neal, regarded himself as an unsuperstitious, secular, agnostic towards atheism, or maybe more like an atheist verging on agnosticism, which is probably more accurate. <clears throat> and uh, I can give you chapter and verse on all of that. And, uh, and yet all of Cousins' books, like all of Neill's dream plays, and I say all, all of Neill's teleplays, They're all rooted in the very uh, definite observation about the human world that religion plays a massively enacting and protagonistic role. And you see it in an early Cousins. You see it in the Son of Perdition, in which one of the three main characters, or maybe one of the five main characters, but in terms of book time, one of the three top characters, is named Father Alexander Fra Alejandro. And Father Alexander is the real thing. That's the irony. Father Alexander is a Franciscan Roman Catholic priest who is an absolutely unblinking, marvelous uh, clergyman who does uh, the uh, walk and he talks the talk. And although he's regarded as a bit of a fool by uh, cousins, he is a man of utter self-sacrificing sincerity, albeit maybe obtuse, uh, but completely uncorruptible person. And uh, he plays a vital, decisive role in this amazing and really much better than I had thought. I, I had such a hard time getting through the first seventy-five pages when I first got it last Christmas that I didn't last Christmas. I uh, da, da, remember that '80s uh, that '80s song. Uh, is it by the same by uh, sort of a new a new wave uh, song uh, from England from the '80s? Last Christmas. YouTube it. But anyway, last Christmas I couldn't make it through it. But I should have thought to myself, you know, Trollope is this difficult. I mean, have you ever read Dr. Thorne? or any of the sort of mid-period Palliser novels by Trollope, you have to read about 150 pages before they get to you. They usually do get to you, but you have to read, or read some of Thackeray's lesser-known novels. You have to read an enormous amount uh, to get into it. Unlike Dickens, uh, Thackeray, and certainly Trollope, and the, some of his less great works, you have to really work at getting into it until you're finally caught. That's true, by the way, even of George Eliot, although less. Now, with Cousins, why should I mind that 70 pages it took me before I began to understand what he's doing? and now that I understand? it is powerful but my point here is that Cousins shows us that even these people are acknowledging they don't want it to be said but their work reveals it That they're observing the power of religion, and Father Alexander plays a marvelously decisive role, even though the author doesn't think much of him, really, in terms of his intelligence. You might call it his emotional intelligence is weak, but he plays a vital role, as religion does in all of Cousins' novels, even in Guard of Honor, which is the least religious of all of uh, Cousins' uh, ten major works. Uh, Even there, the famous meditation of Colonel Ross on the reviewing stand on the fateful Saturday in the 400s, or is it the 500s of that book? Uh, I think it's the 400s. uh, Colonel Ross has a lengthy meditation on the nature of religion in relationship to the judge with whom he clerked, Judge Schlichter. And that in itself shows the mature cousins' Uh, reflections on religion, all of which is a kind of somber and very detached reflection on his own uh, life as a boarding school of student internat at uh, Kent School in Kent, Connecticut, under the famous Anglo Catholic but very real deal, Father Frederick. Henry Sill, S I L L. So you see the role of religion and the observations of religion in Neal and Cousins. And let's just think, carry this one more step to Under Satan's Son. Now, um, one of the uh, facts in American foreign policy, and don't worry, I'm not making a political statement here, is that when uh, There's a tremendous aversion for all sorts of reasons to ever talking about the Islamist religious dimension underlying uh, the Islamist drive. Uh, There is a tremendous uh, sort of uh, uh, need not to talk in uh, sort of religious terms because people are afraid of offending. And I understand that. Of course, I understand it. But uh, let's say that you look, for example, at a video that was taken. One of the most horrific videos in the hostage-taking Um, spate uh, after 9-11 these videos would be taken of some poor hapless western person who was presumed to be from a Christian background by the captors, it was always a terrorist group who had captured a nurse or a teacher or a missionary or a doctor or an uh, aid worker or an engineer or even um, an owner of a business, uh, someone from America or Britain or Germany or Austria or whatever it was, and this person would be executed on camera after having uh, some statements were made. And what was striking, I never saw any of the videos, and I don't want to, but the pictures of them were often shown. That is to say, the pictures of the, of the first frame which simply shows the poor hapless, terribly unhappy and pathetic. So your heart just breaks, surrounded by these young uh, Islamist uh, terrorist figures. And behind them, uh, what you see is in the photograph is simply a flag or a white sheet on which Arabic uh, letters or a banner is written. And they usually give the name of the organization. And I noticed, interestingly enough, that um, one of them, uh, a couple times, uh, it was translated, if you look carefully under the... Al Jazeera or whatever, um, the Americans sometimes wouldn't even translate it. But the translation was not unbecoming. It would simply say, "The um, we are the anti-trinitarian anti-trinitarian League for Monotheism." Uh, The worst of all the terrible videos was conducted under this. uh, That I heard about was conducted under this uh, sheet on which these uh, claiming credit was the. League for anti-Trinitarian monotheism. Well, this uh, poor victim was being executed uh, by these people under the rubric that uh, he must be connected in their minds with Trinitarian Christianity. The whole idea, they were cleansing their region or their country, as they saw it, of Trinitarians, i.e. of Orthodox Christians. Now, isn't that extraordinary? That was what they thought they were doing, for better or for worse, and definitely for worse. They thought they were cleansing cleansing a region on God's behalf, the God of one, as over against the uh, uh, Trinitarian uh, dogs. Now, isn't that extraordinary? Uh, similarly, the title of the current terrorist organization in northern Nigeria, which interests me because of its interface with the Christians in the middle region of Nigeria on the plateau, the um, the uh, their, their name, and no one, you won't get it, you won't read it in the mainstream uh, press because people don't sort of want to understand what, we're dealing with there's a compulsion to take religion out of the holiday, you know, take religion out of uh, out of uh, this season. You know, you know who is the reason for the season not, you know. Um, so what you do is you take it out and you um, you don't translate. Well, the current uh, organization in northern Nigeria, which is responsible for many bombings and many, many murders. Uh, I can tell you the name in Arabic, but what it, the, the translation is Western education is sinful. In other words, the title of the league, the organization, the terrorist organization in northern Nigeria is... Western education is sinful. Well, isn't that fascinating? I mean, that's how they see it. Whether we may, you know, we may want to say, well, terrorism exists in some neutral. Terrorism is terrorism that has no regard to its intention. And you have to deal with terrorism, quay terrorism, that is to say, without any sense of its motive. Well, you know, we're not going to catch terrorists if we don't understand them. Remember uh, Sonny Crockett in – it was a very great episode of uh, Miami Vice – uh, in which he caught a serial killer by means of getting into the head of the serial killer, and of course he went very dark, he went underground and went very dark inside himself, but the result of his understanding of his own inner quote, serial killer, end of quote, allowed him to get so inside the head of the actual serial killer that he was able to capture the serial killer. That theme was carried to its uh, conclusion in the movie Manhunter, directed by um, the team, uh, by, the, by Michael Mann and many of the uh, uh, Miami vice team were in it, and Dennis Farina and so forth. And there, a man had to get inside the head of a serial killer to capture the serial killer. Well, a lot of us don't seem to want to get inside the head of religion. They, people can't even get inside the head of devout Christians at Christmas, and how they, how they, we, and I can include myself, how we understand what we're doing uh, when we do what we do at Christmas time. Uh, there's a tremendous allergic re, uh, allergic thing, and I thought to myself, you know, one day, um, all of us, or some of us, whether we're secular or not, whether we're atheists, agnostics or believers in one or another religion whether we're Christians or whether we're anti-Trinitarian monotheists we're going to find ourselves under, you know you could find yourself a la uh, sort of uh, Orwell, you know, a la the Ministry of Information, i.e. or the Ministry of Truth, actually it's called the Ministry of Truth, which Orwell says is actually the Ministry of Lies, the Ministry of Untruth. We could find ourselves under a Ministry of Truth sheet in which it says under Satan's son and that's why I thought of George Orwell um, you know uh, the, uh, this, these victims of, uh, of uh, terrorism under Satan's son and I thought to myself good lord you know the victim of uh, uh, pagan sacrifice in uh, in uh, Sharps gold see it purely for its genre bending weirdness and the 73 year old Old Manx man, Nigel Neal, imposing his interest on religion on what is basically heaving bosoms and soft uh, core uh, uh, English television that started over there in the 70s. And uh, take a look at that in light, and uh, uh, Cowboys and Indians, uh, and look at it in light of the genre bending importation of Fog and Casca and his priestly knife. Uh, look at that and see a man who. Who couldn't stand religion, but he couldn't steer away from it? And cousins sitting there in Lambertville, uh, writing alone uh, these great books, or in Williamstown, uh, writing these great uh, books that protested to be against religion, and yet they're entirely about religion. And ask yourself whether the world will not write itself. And in fact, you may even find yourself under the under Satan's sun and a sheet in which whether you're this or that or something else, the uh, uh, the world will turn, and who knows the format this will take. Well, this is my little podcast, um, and I very strongly encourage you to rent or buy, probably rent from Netflix, uh, put it on your queue. I don't think you can get it just by streaming of Sharp Skull with Sean Bean. And uh, look again, uh, even at an early and very unusual and very hard to read until you get into it, a picture of the lady doth protest too much, where... Fra Alejandro becomes a absolutely vital ingredient, whether you like him or not, whether you agree with him or not, as the author didn't, a vital ingredient in this most perplexing discussion of American capitalist expansionism in Cuba in the 1920s. Well, by the way, you all understand about the Castros uh, very, very quickly. Uh, if you read this book, which was written, what, 30, 20 years at least before the... the uh, uh, versions of Casca uh, that were in fact uh, forming present day Cuba were at work in the hills. So you all see it all. But uh, look at this in light of uh, the uh, tremendous uh, campaign to uh, keep uh, um, religion out of Christmas, which is just another form of we are the anti Trinitarian monotheists. And uh, note the compulsive need to place into the uh, really non-ideological observation of the human world and note the overwhelming and decisive uh, um, main line of uh, religion into the human world. And for myself... I would continue to say that when it's rooted in the non-judgmental love of uh, the one who came, on the 24th in my book of uh, Christmas, in the bleak midwinter, um, there will be something like a proper importation of uh, an even um, broadly reconciling imputation. Note, by the way, at the end of Nigel Neal's screenplay, that when the pagan sacrificial gods are dethroned and smashed... The uh, popish French officer and the um, broadly tolerant um, English secular major Sharp, who's often also a very beautiful man to look at, are brought together in one realm. One love, one world, let's get together and... Bob Marley, we did. Thank you so much, and Merry Christmas.